On this episode of the Fieldhouse Files, we're going to go inside the mind and have a thorough conversation on sports psychology with Dr. Chris Carr, who used to be with St. Vincent's, worked with the Pacers since November 2011. And welcome into another episode of the Fieldhouse Files. I'm Scott Agnes. Things are starting to look up NBA-wise as they continue to have discussions about what's going on with the league and how they can restart it, potentially in Orlando at Disney World, as well out in Vegas. But we'll get to all that in upcoming episodes. But first, we have a really good one in store for you today. If you haven't caught up with the show before, last few episodes have been really good. On Monday, I had a special interview with that Pacers fan, Kathy Martin Harrison from The Last Dance. I revisited the 1998 Eastern Conference Finals with Bob Kravitz. I also went one-on-one with Pacers head coach Nate McMillan. But today's a different type of episode. You're going to hear about someone behind the scenes who really doesn't speak up and more than anything, listens. That's because Dr. Chris Carr's role is the team sports psychologist, which means trying to be proactive in helping individuals with mental health and with problems both inside the arena, in the practice facility, as well as outside, at home. There's so many different things that all of us, that these players, that these coaches, because it's not just limited to players, go through on a daily basis. And so Dr. Carr is that ear for the players to go to. It is an optional service, but it's something the Pacers believe in and provide to everyone on their staff. But this is somewhat of an exit interview for him because he is moving on. After almost nine years with the team, he joined them in November 2011 and May 1st turned to a new job, left Indianapolis. Well, at least not physically yet because of COVID-19, but he is moving on to a full-time role with the Green Bay Packers, a new adventure for him and something he is really looking forward to. But one thing he's having to work on right now is trying to be productive and helpful from home and trying to make the best of not being able to currently have face-to-face conversations with those he would normally work with. So it's kind of funny. He's going from Pacers to Packers, and it's a position the Pacers absolutely plan on filling. Kevin Pritchard telling me recently that we were super happy with him. He was incredible. He has given us a name, and we have started dialogue with someone. So look forward to that. But this is a unique and fun conversation that I think you will enjoy right here on the Fieldhouse Files. All right, as promised to bring in Dr. Chris Carr, a name you may be familiar with because of his longstanding previous relationship working with the Pacers and Indianapolis teams specifically, has since moved on and taken an exciting new role joining the Packers in a full-time capacity as their director of performance psychology and team behavioral health clinician. So Dr. Carr now joining me uh, to start, I'm curious, what have things been like for you, Dr. Carr? You're in the middle of a transition into a new role, um, not exactly into a new league because you were with the Packers in a part-time role, but generally speaking, what has this been like for you? Because I would expect maybe even the demand for someone like you in your capacity has gone through the roof because of kind of the stoppage and the uncertainness um, kind of in our communities right now. I think like most every profession, particularly in kind of the helping professions were all impacted by this really unprecedented epidemic and, or I guess pandemic is the more appropriate title. Um, You know, it's been a challenge, you know, finishing up and and saying goodbye to folks and organizations that you've worked with for many years is, is always tough. There's a sense of loss and, but at the same time, the excitement of a new opportunity in Green Bay is, um, 
you know, it's, it's really challenging because I'm still here in the indie area. Um, but, you know, we're finding ways through technology, through Zoom, through FaceTime, through emails to maintain communication. Even the staff that are up in the Green Bay area right now with Wisconsin in a stay at home pretty much to the end of the month, people aren't able to get into the facility. So I'm similar to everybody else, but feeling a little distance and I'm ready to get up there and yeah. and kind of get rolling. And I know each day we go through this uh, process, we get one day closer to being back to where we need to be. I'm curious because we've seen so much uh, about the boom in video conferencing with Zooms and Microsoft Teams. What is it about a visual connection in particular right now very helpful um, to feeling part of something or an interaction that maybe you can't have right now because of your inability to leave home and those sorts of things. Yeah, it, it, it's clearly not preferable in the context of the work that I do as a psychologist. So much of the relationship building is dependent upon the ability to sit and have communication, uh, to listen, to engage. And that includes nonverbal as well as verbal communication, which is limited when we have technology. But having done it a long time and having that experience, which you can't really read in a book, I think I have a better sense. Now, obviously, with a lot of newer players and newer folks, it may take some time. But um, and, and there's a little bit of limitations on protection, protection of technology and having HIPAA compliant resources. So I think, you know, it's a slower transition. We're doing a lot more education with handouts. Um, one of the things that we know in, in resilience study and the psychology of resilience is that you kind of have an acceptance of the challenges. You manage those emotions appropriately and have a healthy process to manage it. And then you reestablish goals. You become goal directed. And that social support is con- important. So my weekly calls with staff and coaches um, just keeps that connection going. And And as you mentioned, uh, I think this would be much more challenging if this was my first season with going into the, the NFL, but uh, this will be my third season with the team. So that familiarity already exists and I think makes this transition a little bit easier. Before we get into uh, your role as a sports psychologist and trying to enhance and support uh, the players and even staff members um, for wherever you are, I like the fact you're an Indiana guy, um, played football at Wabash, right? Was this Moving into psychology, was this your way of continuing to work in sports in some capacity? And maybe how early did you discover this was a field that really excites you and you're passionate about? (laughs) I get asked that question a lot by grad students, so I have to share kind of the honest. I was a highly unrecruited 5'10", 170-pound offensive lineman out of Muncie Northside High School. Um, So they weren't knocking down the doors for me to to play at the next level. And at that time, my father had been a Wabash College graduate, and I wanted to keep playing. And so I had the opportunity to look at smaller schools and ended up at Wabash. And uh, my senior year of high school, Wabash played in the Division Three National Championship game in the Stag Bowl. And, um, you know, so it was a great program. And I just grew later and matured and um, was able to play all four years and, and start my last two years. And that was just such a great experience because having that identity and able to achieve some things, uh, I by no means was a a great athlete. I just, I think I was, I maximized my abilities. 
and psychology kind of came in. It was about my fourth major, to be honest with you, okay. in college. Huh. And when I drove away from Crawfordsville after my graduation, my plan was uh, I was going to start graduate school at Ball State. I was going to live at home. I did a master's degree in counseling psychology, and I was a graduate assistant football coach for Ball State. I thought I was going to go into coaching. And that was back in the day when they used to cut film, literally film strips out of canisters. And your job as a GA, not only to getting lunch and doing all the gopher duties, you cut film, which was the most mind-numbing, boring task I could ever want to have. I learned during my counseling degree that this might be interesting. And and actually, as it turned out, uh, I chose to go the counseling route. And I, I worked four years in adolescent addictions field, two years in a treatment hospital, and then two years doing prevention work. And it was during that time that I had friends who were coaches and, you know, people that I step kept connected with that told me about this field of sports psychology. And, and to be honest, I, I didn't know much about it. I researched it quite a bit because I, I felt like I wanted to make a career shift. Found that most people calling themselves a sports psychologist were either not a psychologist or they were a psychologist that reads sports page or coaches a <laughs> yeah. soccer team. And the sports psychology is different academic discipline. So it was at that point my wife and I talked, and and I went back to do my PhD in counseling psychology, with the intent of becoming a psychologist that worked with athletes. So my uh, doctoral minor, when I was doing my PhD work at Ball State, was in sports psychology, and and I was fortunate to go out and spend the third year of my doctoral program at the Olympic Training Center in Colorado Springs, working in the sports psychology department, and that was just such a blessing and opportunity to really. Uh, go into a place and say, yeah, this is something I could do. So to be honest, Scott, you know, it kind of, this career came later to me. Um, and once uh, my wife and I made the decision to move forward, I, I haven't looked back and I've had a blessed and wonderful uh, 29, 30 years since that time. When do you feel like maybe there was an acceptance or understanding of this role? Because to me, it felt like it was more like a couple of years ago, but your role in this capacity goes back all the way to the early 90s. Well, there's quite a stigma about psychology in general, right? And because people are not quite sure how to handle what therapy is or counseling or the role of psychologist, um, there's a lot of stigma about a psychologist as someone you go see when you're only in trouble or there's something wrong. The field of sports psychology and performance psychology, what it's brought so much to our overall discipline is really some scientific and academic search into the areas like mental toughness, psychology of flow, resilience, hardiness. And those were the things that I think I got really kind of pulled into in working in the addictions field because for someone to struggle with such a significant substance dependence issue and then to recover into a state of sobriety or keeping um, clean and living that lifestyle really took psychological strength. And I, I learned a lot about that. And I think I was intrigued with that and felt like sports was a natural system to build that. When I took my first position out of my PhD at Washington State University, full-time psychologist in their athletic department, I was the only person in the Pac-10 conference in that, that role. And one of, I think, four positions in the country that had a full-time psychologist in athletics. And now over the past 
25 plus years, you see that all power five major division one college athletic departments not only have sports psychology and mental health services for athletes, but often have multiple providers and staff members into those positions. And I think that's, we're starting to see that trend a little bit in professional sports. Um, last year in the NFL, the Kansas City Chiefs and Carolina Panthers both had full-time uh, mental health sports psychology folks. And now with my role in Green Bay, um, the Buffalo Bills, the New York Giants, Chicago Bears, uh, some of these teams are now making – everyone's had a clinician, but bringing it in and making it a full-time integrated part of uh, performance and care of the players. Um, I think it's it's fun to be part of that process. I was in that process very early on with the NCAA, and um, I think we're starting – we have a generation now that sees help-seeking behavior as a sign of strength, not a sign of weakness. I think people understand that there is a mental component to athletic performance, dealing with confidence, focus, composure skills, and anyone can read a book and regurgitate information, but to really help an athlete that's at a very high level of athletic performance to integrate those interventions into their preparation and their performance, I think requires a unique skill set. So, um, you know, I think that's it's been this remarkable journey and in, in watching the growth. I think Scott is, and, and to me, we should have been here before, but we're moving in the right direction for sure. A lot of what you said at the beginning too reminds me of kind of what trainers, with, I'm talking about the Pacer trainers, talk about a lot as they focus on prehab. It's before the yes. injury. And so it seems like you were very much in the same route as it, just because you're, you don't feel like you're not having anything or any issues or anything you should discuss doesn't mean you shouldn't have someone to talk to. And that said, um, do you find that oftentimes is the case of trying to say, hey, let me talk to you, even though maybe you don't feel like there is a need right now. Let's let's see if I can help you out. Just give me a chance, so to speak. Well, I think the one thing that's connected to a position like this is um, particularly in the professional level, and I think to a certain degree at the collegiate level, although I think the collegiate level still adheres to the principles and values of overall development of the of the person and i think a lot of division one athletic departments and division two II and three do a wonderful job at providing those resources to their student athletes but in professional sports it's clearly about the ability to perform and one of the things that i will do at the beginning of any training camp in any kind of professional team i've worked with is do some teaching and education about sports psychology and uh, a common question I use uh, with teams is, you know, what percent of your sport do you believe is mental yeah. that has to deal with confidence and focus? And typically with elite athletes, they're going to say 90% or more of their sport is mental at that level because their physical talents and abilities to get to that level are so unique. And now at this point, from a talent and skill standpoint, is a very homogeneous, similar group. So they recognize there's a huge mental component. The second question I'll ask is, of the mistakes you make as a performer, what percent of your mistakes would you say are mental mistakes where you got distracted or you lost your focus or you had some doubt or hesitation or you got too tight? And, and most elite athletes will say, almost all my mistakes are mental mistakes. I have the ability to do the task. I just didn't perform it when I needed to or when the moment counted. So once they've identified their sport is mostly mental and their mistakes, then I ask, how much time do you spend training that part? Because we have these extravagant 
very well outfitted strength rooms, training facilities, I mean, recovery facilities, but how much time do you spend working on that mental part? And that's what brings a lot of athletes in initially is to really kind of sit down and assess what they've done in the past. Um, you know, I've watched over the years more and more athletes coming into the professional level that have had experience. Uh, sometimes the experience hasn't been a good experience. It's been more of a guru or a, a gimmick and not really a integrated part of their development. So uh, to that extent, Scott, I think that's where, you know, really good and competent professionals can make that relationship develop with the athletes and the staff and do a lot of education and then ultimately requires the athlete to commit to the process because, as I tell them, I can't do the mental training to you. That's something you have to choose to do and go work with those tools and then utilize me to go through that process. And and I think the other piece, too, the whole idea of psychology, the idea that psychologists can only do therapy and they can only treat depression or anxiety, I think that's part of the stigma as well because I think those of us that have trained in the past 20-something years and have a combination of training, um, you know, once the athlete comes in the office, no matter what it is, we're going to be able to help navigate that and give them the best support and resource available. So um, it is a unique skill set, um, and there are more and more programs that are developing academic training in this area and supervised experiences, internships, but it's still it's still growing and needs to grow quite a bit. I immediately thought of that old quote, right? Mental is to physical is four is to one. That stood out. And then the fact that, yeah, you can't hold their hand to go through the process. They have to commit to you. You can open their eyes to what you and the field is about, but they really have to commit to you um, in all this. I'm curious too, and, and when it comes to focus, just kind of in general, and probably my generation and those behind me, you know, we're used to our phones and instant gratification on Twitter and those sorts of things. And I've heard coaches right? Holding, you know, shorter meetings. Maybe you have a 30 minute film session, you go practice, then have another film session rather than those extravagant hour and two hour um, type things. Is those kind of things and issues that you've had to really help both teams and individuals work past? Absolutely. There, you know, the, the culture changes and our learning styles change and our learning processes change. Um, You know, it's been to me, it's just a fascinating contextual process and the use of apps and other kinds of interventions on phones and, and helping athletes kind of incorporate that. I mean, it's wonderfully challenging for me, but yet to this day, I find that those elite athletes, those really top of the top, they just do things that are best for them. And they really put effort and energy and focus into that preparation. And if you look at some of the research on flow state, which is that optimal state of performance. So an athlete who's having a world record performance or scoring 50 points in a game or throwing for 400 yards or whatever you would define, they often talk about that as kind of being in the zone and that flow. There is a certain level of attention and focus that's required to be in flow state that you may not be able to achieve in your normal day-to-day activities, you know, switching apps and looking back and forth. <laughs> yeah. And I think that's where the mental training becomes so much more important for these elite athletes because the, the sporting environment is always changing. The intensity of the environment, um, you know, whether it's an NBA arena 
uh, playing in an opposing arena or an NFL stadium or a college uh, a football stadium or arena. I mean, there are so many distractions and things that you can kind of deal with in the environment. And if you're easily distracted, it can take you away from that flow state or the opportunity to be in the zone. Um, so to me, a, a really committed athlete is going to use tools that can ha- kind of help them with their setting goals, can help them be a focused on the goals that they need to be focused on, can help them with their attention, managing the arousal levels, the intensity, um, and really have good routines that prepare them to be at or near their best performance, not just when they compete, but in their practice and training as well. So it, it is fascinating. And for me, that's where our research branch kind of of our field needs to be better at kind of looking at those factors that impact uh, the mental preparation and focus. You mentioned initially being interested in coaching, but the more we talk, the more I have seen, it feels like you're kind of an assistant coach in a way. You're just, instead of diagramming defensive plays like a Dan Burke might provide, you're coming in there with the mental aspect or the focus or why is the team committing so many turnovers, let's say, um, late in the game. How receptive in general have coaches been to to your work and maybe setting aside time for each individual to come through your office and those sorts of things? How much has that changed in recent years? You know, fortunately for me, and, and I know there's different transitions and times, but I've been blessed that, you know, 90% or such of coaching staffs I've dealt with, whether they're Division One athletic departments or professional teams, have been wonderfully supportive of the role nice. and, and that's part of building relationships and, and teaching. And I, and I love doing coaching development because coaches are performers as well. And coaches have to know what to focus on and when to focus on it. Um, so I'm always fascinated, you know, in creating kind of a library of coaching psychology um, principles and communication skills and teaching skills. So, you know, when I get coaches that are receptive to that, <laughs> it's such a collaborative venture. It works really well. And for me, if I don't have that support from the coaches, then the player's utilization of me as a resource is going to be much more limited because players know when the coaches believe in it and players know when the coaches believe in it as an asset, as a strength building component versus a coach that views my role as you're having problems, go see doc. And that's a different kind of um, expectation because it's assuming there has to be the injury or something that happens first. And that's where you made reference to, you know, the athletic training staff and sports medicine staff. Um, You know, during the years I was with the Pacers, I was considered part of the performance staff with our strength conditioning staff, our athletic training staff, our nutrition, um, myself being integrated so you could surround the players with the best resources. What was different was, you know, you can't really mandate them to do my stuff um, because if you don't have that internal commitment. But right. I would tell you what I've noticed just anecdotally in this 30-something years of practice, it's kind of the standard distribution curve that when I go into a team, I know that, that at one end there's going to be 10% of athletes that no matter how polished or how much education or experience I have, they ain't ever going to meet with me. Mm-hmm. And then at the other end, there's about 10% that are going to start scheduling appointments as soon as I'm done doing my presentation. And then about the 80% in between kind of vacillate. Um, But what I have found is over time, if you kind of present yourself as a resource and as a professional, 
not as a guru or a sage or, you know, a, a gimmick. If you present yourself as a professional and what you do, um, you build an endurance of athletes that come in and, and feel in a confidential, trusted environment that they can get better. And then as they speak about it as part of their preparation, just enhances um, your role. And I think that's where sports medicine has evolved and even strength and conditioning to an extent. There were many years ago, you didn't have strength coaches and you surely didn't have performance dietitians and nutritionists. But as we expand our sports science, I think um, the role of psychology and mental health is so important. And um, that's what that's what's exciting about uh, the work I do and the opportunities I've had. And the thing I was been fascinated with too, especially over the last few years, it's not like you're around once a week or anything. If say the Pacers would go on a road trip, it's a high percentage that you would be there. So you would be that resource available to them when they have this free time, when they're alone in a hotel room with, with no one else to talk with and those sorts of things. And on top of that, a lot of what you do from what I see is just observing and jotting down notes and probably, I don't know if it's things you go back to in your conversations with them or, or what have you, but uh, you're constantly evaluating individuals and probably team body language and things like that. Well, I think part of being a behavioral op- observer is part of your role. Um, I, I Unfortunately, there's people who will observe and then make global statements of um, definitive response. Well, the team is this. Well, I don't I don't make those global statements. I make observations. And then you look at patterns over time. A lot of times when I would be doing reflection, it's basically my own assessment of what's happening or my own observation or curiosities. And and oftentimes none of that stuff really gets transmitted anywhere beyond my own experience and my own opportunity to grow as a professional. Now, I do have some athletes in my work with them who are asking me to share those observations and watch for certain conduct and behaviors and um, because they want to be better and they want a um, neutral uh, yet aware observer. And and what the, the, the value of going into a full-time position is going to be that visibility, that relationship building. And I think when athletes see you as an integrated part of their culture and their environment, and you have a professional skill set to operate from, I think you can engender a sense of trust in them because when they sit down and talk about the challenges they they struggle with and they face, they're talking to someone who's seen it and understands it. It may not from the same experience as them, but very clearly from the experience of, yes, I can see how that would be an impact. So, um, you know, even in this new position I've taken, one of the things um, – that was brought up to me during the process was um, by one of um, the folks in kind of the top administration was we see this opportunity as a chance for you to connect with those players who come by your office when you're not in town. And that's when they needed to talk. Mm-hmm. And now by making it more accessible, and I think the whole bottom line of committing a position to it also validates that this is an important piece of your development as an athlete. I think if you're brought in on a part-time and once in a while kind of basis and you're not really visible, I think you retain in that context of, well, there has to be something wrong for you to go seek that help. Yeah, no, I completely agree. That that speaks volumes about how they feel about you 
and the growth in that profession and how maybe more accepting or confident they are um, in that capacity. One thing in particular I'm curious about, because something I think fans and even media get into is body language, particularly maybe on the bench, late in games, and whether a team's cheering for each other or or what have you. How much is body language um, something that impacts a, a person's mental well-being and maybe a team capacity as well? One of the things that we're taught, and I, I always try to, I spent six years consulting with the Kansas City Royals, and I remember the first spring training I went to, I had a minor league coach come up after my presentation and kind of said, oh, I, I know I know the kind of stuff you do. I took a class when I was in college, and I said, I kind of looked back at him, and I didn't have a problem saying, you know, I played baseball till I was in seventh grade. I don't think that means I can do what you do. Um, there is a sense of projective awareness that you're trained during your six, seven years of graduate training as a psychologist. And that's really related to your comments. So when someone says their, their body language is poor, if a fan or someone is saying it, it's coming from their place of relevance. If they're not feeling good about a team, teams getting beat by 20 points, and a person is already feeling as a fan that sense of disappointment or frustration or whatever, and then they look at someone's behavior, they're going to project their own huh. thoughts into that observation they have. What I've learned over the years is the best feedback I can give to a player is, I noticed in this moment, this was how you looked. What was going on with you during that time? Rather than me to try to project and say, boy, your body language was bad, but rather say what was going on during that time. And that gives individuals a chance to be aware of how their body language impacts their communication, their team dynamic. It's a fascinating piece of my role, and I would trust myself. I've been in so many different places, to two Olympic Games, uh, NCAA championships, all the different things I've been to. You, you get kind of your own individualized catalog sense of how players are going to respond in certain situations. That's where the relationship is so important because as I build a relationship with a player over time who's committed to working on their mental skill set, then you're able to watch them in practice and in competitions and be able to see patterns of behavior so that if they're on the bench or the sidelines and someone says, boy, their body language is bad, well, maybe it's not bad body language. Maybe it's just how they manage and reset themselves but perceived everybody else that looks bad. And I think that's human behavior. And I think that's, you know, the whole sports context is about assumptions and interpretations of a behavior or something that's seen that may or may not fact be true. I assume you've been watching this, the last dance with Michael yes. Jordan. What do you make of how much we interpret MJ and how the, the one of the many ways he's a dominant player is that the end justifies the means, right? And how he treats people and goes about his business every single day. What do you make of his motivational tactics? Well, I think there's general generational changes because you think of the years that he played in the context of how players came into that system back in those days, typically coming out of collegiate programs instead of straight out of AAU. Um, you know, I, I, I think there's so many factors that are involved. I'll tell you, a lot of those documents, documentaries and everything are, are interesting to me, but they're so edited. And there's mm -hmm. so many different variations of how the story could go. So I kind of, so to speak, take it with a grain of salt. What was impactful 
and I think it's been probably replicated multiple times since even was when he was talking about you know, how badly did you want to win? And if you were a teammate and you could see that emotion come in him, that was legit. That was genuine. And I have found that those types of athletes, they really do things different and they can't really understand how other people that maybe have even more talent can't commit to the same behaviors and kind of motivations. And I think that's what separates. I mean, there's a, there's, top 20 for a reason right not top 200 top 20 for a reason you separate that elite level so i think it's a fascinating study um of the different dynamics it's you know it's a unique story but i always as i would say there's always stories behind the story sure yeah there's 200 hours cut down to uh 10 hours right exactly (laughs) so at some point a producer director is editing and making choices about things that are going to be on TV versus maybe something that, in my view, might have been more impactful that was on the cutting floor. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, you just have to put perspective into anything you watch from that that aspect. I do think it's also a little bit real, though, because you have players talk about it and discuss it. And so it clearly stuck out to them um, in some capacity. And this is just me talking, but this is one reason I think, for instance, Michael Jordan has not been successful and as an exec. And maybe why... Peyton Manning could not be a coach because they outwork people. They have a different level of intensity and, you know, it'd be hard for them to go to work and not see someone work as hard or be as committed to that type of role. And so I kind of laugh knowing that Jordan's kind of in Florida hanging out and maybe not putting a lot of work from our van- far vantage point into to his Hornets. I don't know. That's just me talking here. Um, we do see the, the NBA has partnered with Headspace. Uh, LeBron's worked with Calm. There's more apps coming out. And Dr. Carr, this is probably a time more than any, uh, at least in recent history, where folks like you and, and some meditation and journaling and and really taking time for yourself is needed. What would you suggest to them to kind of find some inner peace and, and calmness in a time of concern and worry? Well, you know, one of the things that, that I'll encourage folks, and I've written about this with some handouts that have been you know, in both organizations, with Pacers and even within St. Vincent, the two organizations I've just kind of moved on from as well as, um, you know, moving into a new organization. But, you know, my approach is, yes, there's a coping process in any kind of situational stressor, like this is a situation with the COVID-19 pandemic and, and how it's impacting. This is an external thing that we don't have control over. But one of the things that I do, even with the individual athletes, is I talk about choosing how you're going to respond. We're not responsible for the things that happen to us. We don't always control the things that happen to us, but we are responsible and have choice over how we respond. So if a person wants to get through the situation and end up being a little better than they were or growing through it, then you have to kind of decide that you're going to choose to be resilient and we know when people struggle through adversity, there's different ways that you come back from that. You either come back worse than you were, you come back the same that you were, or you come back a little better than you were as a result of that. And that's the type of um, research that I like to read and, and kind of stay up on, not just stories, but, you know, actual factors that are contributing to that. So a couple things that I've encouraged is, number one, accept that this is an unusual event and that every day is going to be a little different and there's going to be losses, losses of communication, as you said, going to the coffee shop, those types of things. 
But once we acknowledge those, have a way to kind of acknowledge it. And that's why I encourage journaling. I encourage having, you know, communication with friends, you know, staying socially connected, which is another big important piece of recovering from setbacks. We know, for example, with psychology of injury, um, that not only engaging in mental skills to help come back, but keeping those social connections is so important. Um, I think the other thing is being very goal-directed, establishing two or three goals every day that you're going to work on, even if you're working from home. Even if the goal is reaching out to family members or doing a Skype or a FaceTime or a Zoom meeting, um, being very intentional about achieving tasks that are tasks that you control. I think staying physically active and um, being able to kind of get out and engage with the outdoors, taking walks, doing things to slow down and be grateful are strategies that allow us to navigate and move through tougher situations. And um, with intentional goal setting and you start to accomplish and check things off your list, you maintain that sense of achievement and accomplishment that a lot of people feel they're missing because they're not going to practice or doing things every day. But there are things like mental imagery. There are visualization strategies. There are things that can be established that can help you work through a process like we're going through now. And that could be anybody in any situation. But you've got to make the choice that you want to be resilient because you want to take that self-determination and that self-direction in how you respond. It's amazing to me. I know how impactful that you have been because a lot of the things you are talking about is things I've talked with Pacer players about and have heard them discuss even uh, with them initiating the conversation, um, whether it's journaling or mental imagery. And you know, you hear about guys talking about, I daydreamed the night before uh, about the big win or about that big playoff game and, and the communication. I, I think you've really left a mark. Uh, certainly, I know with the Pacers, and they really appreciated you. It's a position Kevin Pritchard thinks highly of, and as I know he was talking, uh, he told me last month he was talking with you, trying to find a replacement because that's how much he thinks about uh, you in your role. Um, is there anything else as we wind up this conversation more about this profession or, or the stigmas around it that you'd want to discuss? Anything that jumps out? No, you know, Scott, I think um, I, I think those of us that are that are really making a commitment to our profession to be as ethical and competent and skilled and you know, these same tools that I encourage athletes, I, I use for myself because I want to be elite in my own profession. I want to be an optimal performer, whether that's sitting down with an individual athlete or meeting with a team or a position group or a group of coaches. I don't ever want to see myself as being less than my best when I have the opportunity to engage and be involved. So I, I really practice what I teach, not preach, teach. Um, you know, it's motivation comes from within. And yes, there are sometimes the external motivators that are part of what guides us, but internal motivation will clearly guide you to the best level of achievement. And I think in any given discipline, um, I'm just hopeful that as our, our field kind of continues to advance, that psychology is respected in a positive way as a resource. I think in the past year with Kevin Love and DeMar DeRozan and, and some of our players in the NBA and the NFL and Major League Baseball and NHL speaking about the importance, our Olympians like a Michael Phelps or um, 
uh, Allison Schmidt, you know, some of our elite swimmers that have dominated the world stage for so long, talking about going through it, that it normalizes that, um, you know, that this is an important part of the human experience. And, and all of these individuals I work with, they may be gifted and talented athletes, but they're human beings that have families, that have relationships, that have challenges and stressors. And I think that's, you know, the value I hope to play in my continued role is being that support because I think when people feel a well-rounded sense of self and they have their physical taken care of, their spiritual taken care of, their mental and their emotional and their behavioral taken care of, that sets the stage for being the kind of performer you want to be, whether that's a surgeon, a musician, um, a long road truck driver, whatever profession, to be the best that you can be. And, you know, you started this off with why you came. Well, I wasn't one of those gifted athletes. I, you know, I, I that wasn't my nature, but I was always striving to achieve goals and, and be as good as I could be. And to be honest, blowing my knee out in the Monat Bell game my senior year <laughs> probably is the seed of why psychology was so interesting to me because dealing with the physical part of that, you know, injury and then the, the post and rehab wasn't half as hard as the mental part. And I think, you know, when I started working with injured athletes and providing kind of supportive counseling and, and proactive interventions, um, I could resonate with that because it was, wow, there's this whole part that you kind of have your identity taken away in one play in the most important of, of the games maybe you played in your life. And, um, so few will ever kind of understand what that feels like, but to come to terms with that and come to peace with it and move on from it. I mean, all of us out there and particularly those athletes that every day kind of put their challenge and, and get picked apart. I mean, <laughs> even, even like when uh, Facebook, when the Packers put out the, the, the press release about my new position and it was on their Facebook page, I told my family, do not go to that page. I said, do not read the comments. And whatever you do, do not reply to those comments because you don't realize that, boy, everybody has uh, uh, an opinion about everything. And um, it's sad in some ways that, uh, you know, and sad in times where we need the challenge and adversity that people want to tear down instead of build up. And um, so I think, you know, this kind of story is a great opportunity because people, I think that my colleagues that I've known for many years, I, we do it because it's in our heart to help other people and, and be that resource. It helps our clients, our athletes kind of work through their own challenges and just listen, feedback, um, give them tools. So when they have that kind of success, that's awesome to hear that you were impactful and help people. That's awesome because that's ultimately you know, my goal for doing this is to help people get better. Yeah. And man, you brought up two significant areas that, go even away from the floor, right? The injury, uh, yeah. significant injury. We had that with Paul George, with Victor Oladipo, and they both talked about times when you think about quitting or will you ever play again and trying to overcome those obstacles. Uh, I'm sure guys, and they have their identity taken away from them. I'm sure they're making money, but that's not who they are, and they're away from the game for more than a year. And then you go into the social media aspect and all this, and I even wrote this year about um, where Miles Turner, and you can't talk about this, obviously, but Miles Turner turning off social media and Malcolm Brogdon doesn't believe in it and why TJ McConnell stays off of it. 
And all that is really interesting to me because you're right. There's Depending on how one utilizes their feed and who they follow, they're going to be impacted, right? But how and is it favorably? So at a minimum, it's probably best for these players to avoid their mentions and perhaps use it simply as a tool and as a news feed. So I really appreciate well, those two last And thoughts. I don't want to sound like I'm, you know, again, the psychology of injury, we've grown to the part now where it's an expectation that I work with injured players, not just let's wait. It's part of right in the process sure. early. And we start with that. And that's a part of your care and the social media, you know, it's around, but I think we have to understand we choose what we want to attend to. We choose what we want to read. Um, we unfortunately live in a world that can often be cruel. We've seen a lot of cruel things on behalf of people and in a place where you can hide and, and not really be accountable. Um, you know, that's athletes are in a unique culture. They're in a fishbowl. And, um, and, you know, I, I really empathize with some of the issues that they go through and that's okay for people to, um, challenge. Well, you know, that's just sports and they get paid. Yeah. I, I've worked with lots of, um, high risk performers and not just in the athletics world. And um, I guess I re respect and admire uh, their process to be elite. And if I can be a resource to help them be even a little bit better and help them when the challenges are in front of them, then I'm happy doing that. And, and like I said at the beginning, I've been blessed to have the career I've had. And um, I'm hopeful to see training programs put out new psychologists that have that kind of training and hopefully they're patient to develop their experiences that will lend even more knowledge to what they do. I truly enjoyed this and I wanted to have some kind of an exit interview, if you will. I'd wanted to talk <laughs> to you for quite a while, but now that you're leaving us and moving on to the NFL and, and specifically the Green Bay Packers, I'm glad you made time and I really appreciate this. I think a lot of people, Dr. Carr, can get a lot out of this, whether you're a Pacers fan um, indie sports fan or just curious about this field and how it can impact you. So thanks so much for the time. Absolutely, Scott. Thanks for having me on. Well, that was Dr. Chris Carr. My thanks to him for taking time during this down period to finally have this long overdue conversation. I know that I got a lot out of it and hopefully you did as well. There was a couple times after recording it that I went back to listen because I wanted to hear once again what he had to say and uh, about certain techniques certainly that he believes him. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the Fieldhouse Files podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to your podcast, we are on there and would really appreciate you both subscribing and taking about 20 seconds to leave a five-star review. That will do it for this week's episode, a bonus week. We brought you two episodes of the Fieldhouse Files this week, and I'll talk to you again soon.